0: Welcome to episode 129 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux good news. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got some interesting and somewhat rocky news for CentOS to talk about. We've also got an independent Flatpak app store that's been released called Souk, We've also got some awesome news related to some gaming stuff where Cyberpunk 2077 has been reported to run on Linux through Proton. And we'll talk about that, which Proton, by the way, awesome. Uh, Also going to talk about a lot of different releases that happened this week, like with Qt 6.0 has been out. uh, Crux, QEMU, OpenRGB, and PAPPL, Printer Library, all have new releases this week. And we're also going to round the show out with a Humble Bundle to talk about. Actually, multiples, because there's a lot of cool stuff in there. All that and so much more coming up right now on This Week in Linux. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new App Platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps as well as static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It has support for multiple languages, including Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and it also supports static sites and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure using DigitalOcean's Kubernetes. So this provides a significantly lower cost for you and then other products and also provides a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of this Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free by going to do.co/dln. And actually it's better than free because you get a $100 free credit that you can use over the next two months to get all kinds of testing with the app. Platform as well as creating DigitalOcean droplets to do a uh, monster-sized droplets or multiple uh, smaller droplets. If you you can try all kinds of stuff with that by going to do.co co/dln. Again, go to do.co slash dln to get started with that one hundred dollar free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux first in the show this week, we're going to talk about the big news that has happened this week, and that is CentOS. So CentOS had a recent announcement that has been, well, it's had some mixed reactions. There's a lot of people who are very excited about what the future holds for CentOS, and there's also people who are not excited and not happy at all. So lots of mixed reactions. So what happened? So CentOS... Has, there's an announcement is basically saying that CentOS Linux is going to be replaced with CentOS Streams, and CentOS Streams is essentially placing CentOS in a upstream position for RHEL instead of the clone of RHEL as it has been for a while. So prior to this announcement, the structure was Fedora to RHEL to CentOS, and now it's going to be Fedora to CentOS to RHEL. And Let's be clear about like what exactly the CentOS stream is. Well, CentOS stream is a structure of CentOS that allows it to have continuous delivery of updates and release structures and that sort of thing. And also, to be clear, it's kind of like a rolling release, but not actually because it's more of like an enterprise-friendly style of rolling releasing. Like, it, it there is... There are very some similarities to it, but it's not exactly the same thing. So when people are, there are some people who are worried about the rolling release and that's actually one of the reasons people have touted as being a problem for not using CentOS streams and we'll get to that in a second. But first, I just want to point out that Red Hat and the CentOS project leadership want to hear from people for, or directly about why they specifically choose CentOS Linux and how Red Hat and Enterprise Linux and CentOS streams could serve the use cases that they have. So for this, they're asking people and companies who use CentOS uh, instead of uh, Rel to open up a dialogue with them by sending an email to them. The email is sent to dash questions at redhead.com. I'll have the full thing down there in the, the description and in the show notes. If you're a, a very heavy user of CentOS and this creates a problem for you, then be sure to send an email to them to have a conversation about that and see what they can help you with and what's coming in in the future for Red Hat because there's actually quite a few things that makes this a An interesting timing because Red Hat has already talked about there are creating some new programs to get RHEL for free. And we'll get to that in a minute, though. The controversy is basically coming from people who are in companies who were using CentOS Linux like through either CentOS 8 or using a previous version that were transitioning to CentOS 8 and what they can do from going forward because there was an expectation of Many time, many every single time of the recent releases of CentOS, they've had a ten year stable support cycle, and that was also set for CentOS Linux eight. But they have now decided to drop that when they replaced it with Streams. So the support cycle for CentOS Linux eight is one year, whereas the support cycle for CentOS Streams is five years. So there's a lot of nuance here, and I understand that I'm going to be I'm saying CentOS multiple cases and meaning different things. So just to be clear, CentOS Linux is the older version style of CentOS. CentOS Streams is the new style of CentOS. So I will sometimes say uh, CentOS meaning either one. So if I, I will try not to do that, but just fair warning, it might happen. Anyway, there's basically three state of minds people are having about the being expressed by the the community and having issues with what's going on so first of all one of the thing i talked about with the support of the 10 year cycle that is undoubtedly the biggest issue that people have had with this news. But there's also some other stuff with the rolling release model because people are kind of worried about they wanted to use CentOS because they wanted to have a stable uh, server based distribution that they could use in production environments and that sort of stuff. And changing it to this kind of makes that that the waters muddied a little bit. Uh, They've actually talked about this is not necessarily rolling, it's a continuous delivery structure, which also Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL does deploy a continuous delivery structure in terms of the point releases and also updates in between point releases, they also do that. So it's kind of similar. It's just that CentOS will be getting those updates sooner rather than after like it used to be. The other thing is that some people think that this is a cash grab from IBM and to force companies to purchase the license of Rel and stuff like that. And while that will probably happen that some companies will choose to switch to Rel so that they don't have to do any kind like any huge changes in their infrastructure, but however, it's not necessarily related to IBM's. It's just a weird timing thing. Because I mean, the biggest issue with this whole announcement is the timing. Because if they had done this for the release of of RHEL or CentOS 8 originally, it wouldn't have been as problematic. If they had done this, waited to do it for 9, it wouldn't have been as problematic. But the because they did it in between and they changed the support cycle for CentOS Linux to 1 year instead of 10, that creates a bit of an issue. But RHEL... And well, the decision to switch CentOS for this is probably not related to IBM doing it. The reason I say this is because Red Hat purchased CentOS in 2014, and the way they worded their announcement for the purchase is that they were kind of leaning towards doing this anyway. So I think it just it's just an in- an interesting happenstance that they happen so close to each other. But I do think that Red Hat made the decision, not IBM. And is is interesting because Red Hat announced that they're going to be doing a new programs to get Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL for free. So they already have a developer subscription so people who have talked about they use CentOS as a development platform and then transition over to Red Hat. They could still do that. And because they could do that with the developer subscription model with this this is a free way of getting the self-supported subscription for individuals who want to develop and test on Red Hat's commercial and enterprise uh, enterprise product. So they still can have that same path. They also have the universal base image for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. A, it's a tool that allows you to have containerized applications, but that provides like a safer, more secure. And it's also free of charge way to doing a base, a base image for creating containerized cloud native enterprise applications through using Rail, So you can essentially have a containerized approach of a base image of Rail that you could use for free. In addition to that, they also announced that coming in quarter one of 2021, that they will be having a, a way to do production style free RHEL or free of charge kind of thing. Um, it's, it's interesting because this is, an the reason why it's a t- badly timed is because CentOS... Streams announcement is happening prior to the announcements for Red Hat Enterprise Linux becoming a freely available thing, though, whether it's for production or for whatever else. It's just that this it should have been Red Hat announcing those things first and then announcing the CentOS Stream stuff after the fact, because it just created a lot of confusion for a lot of people. And also, you know, there's, there's value in the CentOS streams in terms of, I personally think it's more interesting to have a continuously delivered approach for CentOS rather than having to wait months at a time to get updates. So it's just an interesting situation because, and on one hand, people are bothered by this change being all of a sudden and fair enough, because it does seem to be coming out of nowhere. But also, there's other thing on the other side. There, there are solutions to get genuine Red Hat Enterprise Linux for free, which seems to be a a better play for a lot of people. You get to be able to use RHEL for free rather than having to use a binary compatible version of RHEL. So I think that there's a there's a lot of confusion around this whole topic, and unfortunately that's what's creating the controversy is the confusion. The communication from Red Hat is it could have been better with the value that CentOS Streams offers for the community in terms of being able to contribute directly to the future of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I think that itself is valuable. I think the people who would like to use the faster up to date stuff with rail like instead of having to wait months at a time to get stuff they could be using centos streams to get that i think that's really cool for the, those users but i do understand there are a lot of users who just chose to use centos because it allowed them essentially to have binary compatible rail but for free and depending on what degree the p- new programs in next year offer they might even still be able to do that with rail directly. So I think that this this is very interesting in many ways, but the mis- the communication issues is really the biggest factor here because I think that having this announcement prior to those programs being available is really what created this this confusion for everyone. There you go. And also again if you want to be uh, you know, you want to participate in the uh, conversation that I talked about how Red Hat and CentOS project leadership want to hear from people. If you want to participate in that, pro- that that attempt to, you know, clarify why you use CentOS uh, Linux versus RHEL or CentOS Stream and how those could be uh, modified to for your use case. If you'd like to participate that, I'll have again the email, which is centos-questions at redhat.com in the, the show notes below in the video description for more information. And before we move off on the CentOS topic, there's actually a little bit we want to talk about more in relation to the alternatives because from this there has been a lot of not only has there been, you know, some some fallout in terms of people's opinion, there's also been people who are talking about making competitives competitors to CentOS in terms of like recreating CentOS in some cases. So for example, um, Cloud Linux has talked about making their own project. There's as, as a competitor to the binary compatibility that CentOS offered. And also Oracle Unusable Linux is talking about making one, it's, it's people doing, you know, taking advantage of the situation in terms of promotional aspects. And that's what Oracle Unusable Linux is doing. Uh, but also there's been another project for uh, com- the community talking about making the, binary compatible with RHEL, that sort of stuff in the same vein that CentOS already was. And this project is called Rocky Linux. Uh, Rocky Linux is a distribution that is aimed to be a community enterprise operating system. And they say that it's designed to be 100% bug for bug compatible. That's a weird way of saying binary compatible. I would suggest binary compatible because bug for bug implies there's a lot of bugs. And that's not a very good way of describing something. So, you know, don't use that term. That's just a tip. Anyway, moving on. So they say that this distribution is currently under major intensive development for by the community. Uh, There's no ETA at present for the release. They do think it will be somewhere between quarter one to quarter two. They are saying that it will be definitely way before the end of CentOS Linux 8. Release support, uh, but uh, they are saying that they we don't have they don't have an ETA yet. Now this project is made by the the one of the founders of CentOS, and that's uh, Gregory Kurtzer. So I just want to do a quick note about let's do some a little bit of history related to CentOS because I think that this is really interesting because the founder status that CentOS has for with Gregory Kurtzer is accurate, but also there's a lot of nuance to it to say. Yes, he's a founder, and also, no, not really. It's interesting because... Uh, Gregory Kurtzer was the founder of CentOS when it was the uh, based on the uh, Chaos Linux. So Chaos Foundation created what came to, came to become CentOS. So it was originally called uh, Chaos EL or Chaos Enterprise Linux. And then it was renamed to CentOS in December 2003. And at that time, it was still based on Chaos Linux. It was a very different CentOS at the time. It was actually not even based on Red Hat at the time. So... It's a little bit of a nuance to say he's the founder because he was the founder up until he was a founder of the project and also worked in the project until 2005. And in 2005, he left the CentOS project. And then there was a a changing of uh, there was a change in leadership. There was a change in uh, base at some point. It was, I think, around 2007, 2008 when they changed it to RHEL. Uh, But it was actually Teo Linux who was also involved in this because Teo Linux in 2006 merged with the CentOS project, and started working together on the CentOS. So there was a lot of changes in between the period of being founded by Kurtzer and what it became, and also what it was known for. So it's interesting because in the terms of the name of the project, yes, but in terms of what the core basis for the project was, not exactly. So it's, it's just interesting because there's so much history related to CentOS that I didn't know until... I didn't know some of this information until this news came out because I started digging more and more into this. Because when I saw that people were talking about Rocky Linux being created by the founder of CentOS, it confused me because I knew the founder as someone else. Uh, there was actually someone named Lance Davis who was the found who was also a founder of CentOS, and there were two other people who were founder of CentOS. So when I heard this news, it kind of conf- it kind of threw me off because I already knew someone else as being that and. Then I started digging more and found out there's a lot of nuance to this project. It's really interesting because of how many changes it went through over the course of its life. And also a lot of people had talked about CentOS being what made Red Hat popular. In the community this week, people have talked about how Red Hat is is big because of CentOS. It, but, at the, but CentOS came a, over a decade later and wasn't even based on Red Hat until years after that. So it definitely wasn't CentOS that made Red Hat popular. And it's essentially Red Hat is what made CentOS popular. So it's the reverse of what actually happened because in 2010, CentOS started getting a lot more uh, attention because it was based on RHEL at this point. And also it started getting a lot more uh, competitive in the open source server world in comparison to, Uh, Debian which was also pretty big at the time too so Debian and CentOS kind of traded back and forth so 2010 CentOS took uh, the kind of the top status for open source server production and stuff like that and then in 2012 Debian took it back over and from 2010 to 2014 they started basically trading back and forth which one was uh, relevant in what time and that kind of thing Uh, but uh, in 2014 that's when Red Hat purchased CentOS so Red Hat essentially made CentOS the big player that it became, not the other way around, which I think is very interesting in terms of the history of the project, because there's so much to this that it it probably deserves its own video just to talk about all the stuff that happened with this CentOS and this, this era of the transitioning and all the different Projects that were connected to it and the ones that merged into uh, it, there's a lot to d- to talk about. I also think it's really interesting that the other companies like Cloud Linux and Oracle's unusable Linux is using it as an opportunity to you know get more attention to as an alternative to CentOS and that sort of stuff. There is a lot to stuff talk about this, but I've gone on too long already, so. Maybe I'll make a video follow-up to talk about the whole CentOS project in a general and its history and that sort of stuff and how this relates more going on. And if you're interested in that kind of video, then please leave a comment in the uh, link comments below and also uh, on the forum if you'd like to for DLNforum.com. I'll have a thread for this episode there as well. So be sure to let me know what you think about this topic in general. And also if you want to have a video made for a more you know, full wide range of the project in general, that kind of thing. Let me know in the comments below. Up next in the show is an interesting topic related to app stores and specifically a Flatpak app store. And that is Souk or S-O-U-K. This is a Flatpak based app store written in GTK4 and Rust. Yes, GTK4. That's not actually out yet, but this is using GTK4. There are rumors saying that it'd be released pretty soon. However, uh, we're halfway through the month and people are saying it will be released this month. I don't know because I couldn't find any actual released roadmap stuff. I've, I've seen people talking about it will be this month, but I couldn't find any conf- uh, confirmation for that. So while it, it'd be interesting if it is, I don't know for sure. However, I do know that GTK four is being used in for Sook. So that is interesting. So, uh, it's also, they say that it's written from the ground up to be an app store that works both on desktop and mobile devices. It, is, uh, it uses Gnome Builder. It's actually a part of the Gnome GitLab, but it is an independent third-party application, not an official Gnome app. And uh, they say that uh, how it relates to Gnome software, they say that Gnome software does a lot more things like doing firmware upgrades, managing package kit packages, and doing complete OS upgrades. We don't want to add such functionality to PASUK. So this is interesting because uh, there are some people who are not... You know, they're are negative towards GNOME software because of they say it's inefficient for memory, or they say that it's uh, a bulky or something like that. It, it's it's interesting because GNOME software is more of trying to do an all encompassing approach, whereas uh, SUSE is just doing focus on flat packs. And I do I do like flat pack as a as a, I do think it needs to have a store and it needs to have a well rounded store. But I also think that a single a store that is just devoted to flat packs is also in itself not ideal for users. So uh, any, any of the app stores, like there's so many different app formats and there are multiple app stores, it can be confusing for beginning users. And I think that we should be trying to work on consolidating the experience to either, you know, I think the best option is just to have a single app store and I know GTK versus Qt makes that a little bit more difficult, but I do think that that would be the ideal. If we couldn't get there, I think we should have you know a, a, a consensus for community saying this particular app store for GTK or this particular app store for Qt, and then just work to improve those because. While I think this is interesting that Souq exists and trying to like push Flatpak forward. I think that's great. And I think the fact that they're using GTK four is also really cool. And also rust is interesting that they're using it. Uh, and I do think that the fact that they're focusing on making it r- run well on mobile devices is also good, but one format seems like it's just missing a lot of stuff. So anyway, uh, let me know what you think in the comments below I'm curious what you think about like just this particular application or my comments about having a, an app store devoted to one type of format might not be the best uh, approach. Uh, let me know what you think in those comments below. Up next in the show is the first stable release of PAPPL or Papple. I'm just going to call it Papple from now on because I don't know if it's supposed to be pronounced like that or if it's just the initialism, Initialism, but it is fun to say Papple, so I'm going to call it that. And also it's worth noting that the developer of Papel, Michael Sweet, used to work for Apple on CUPS and is still technically the lead developer of CUPS because he forked CUPS into the open printing project. So Apple hasn't really been paying attention to CUPS, whereas Michael Sweet has through the open printing process or open printing project. So, you know, he's still technically the leader, the lead developer for that as well. But for those who are not familiar we talked about Papel in a previous episode, but it is a, a C-based framework library for developing cups printer applications, which are the recommended replacement for printer drivers. And it also has support for L Print and future uh, GutenPrint printer applications. Uh, it's also have support for uh, the IPP Everywhere protocol, and that is the is very interesting because if you're not familiar. Uh, IPP Everywhere is a PWG standard that allows computers and mobile devices to find and print uh, net, net, to network and USB printers without using vendor-specific software. And that's the important piece is the non-vendor-specific software that makes it a lot easier to have support for different types of printers. Now, for a very long time, HP printers have had the best support in Linux thanks to HP putting in the effort to make sure that they had all their printers work in Linux. And there's also other printers that, you know, hit or miss depending on the particular vendor and the particular printer. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But this is great because having all of these different things and making it um, you know, a more modern style of printing means that you can have more uh, types of printers and different kinds of printers working better on your desktops and your servers and that sort of stuff. So this is really cool. If you'd like to learn more, we also talked about the fork of cups by open printing in episode 122 of This Week in Linux, as well as we talked about PAPPL or PAPL in a previous episode as well. I'll have links in a show notes below for those who want to learn more about this, as well as links for the latest release of one. the first stable release of Papel. Links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust, and you can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check it out. Password managers are a great way to have a balance of security and convenience when using online accounts. I mean, I use the password manager, I use Bitwarden every single day, and it it is so nice to have it on my desktop, my laptop, my uh, mobile devices. It's also, you can put it, it's in browser plugins options. It also has the command line support if you want to use that. So many great things. And if you're not familiar, a password manager, Manager is the best way to have convenience and security because you get password generation. You get, it'll save your passwords in a vault. It also has auto filling of the passwords. So you don't have to type in the passwords yourself, which is just fantastic. So that is why you should use a password manager. And the reason you should use Bitwarden is that it is 100% open source software. And also they allow you to do self-hosting if you want to as well. And they do security audits. So they hired third-party firms to audit the code to make sure it is a secure as possible. And you can get started again by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN, and you can get started for free. But they also have a premium account you can check out for just $10 per year. That's right. Per year, And with that account, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP, Authenticator Storage, and Generation, as well as priority customer support. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get it started for free. But if you're like me, though, you want to show your appreciation for their premium edition because it's only $10 per year and you get all those extra features and also you're letting them know that you appreciate them supporting this podcast. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN, and thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is some great news for Linux gamers, and that is Cyberpunk 2077 runs on Linux. Now, it runs through Proton, because it is a Windows-only game, but thanks to the Proton team releasing 5.13-4 the day before Cyberpunk 2077 launched we have support for playing it on Linux through Proton, which is awesome. For those who are not familiar, Proton is a wine-based compatibility tool for Steam Play, uh, thanks to Valve and the Coevers team, which is awesome. So you have support for being able to play Cyberpunk 2077 on Linux. Now, it's not going to be the most seamless experience because, well, it is using a sort of emulator type of compatibility layer sort of thing. Uh, So you, you, depending on your hardware and depending on your distribution, there may be a little bit of a nuance there. So if you have Uh, AMD Radeon Graphics you'll have an easier experience depending on the distro because uh, you you also need to have the latest version of Proton but you also need uh, the Git stack for the Mesa Graphics Uh, and some distributions already have up-to-date support for it and some don't so it depends there Uh, but at the same time for those who are using NVIDIA there is support for NVIDIA depending on the driver version you have which is currently uh, 455 dot 45 dot zero one those are that's just a fantastic version numbering process nvidia there you go anyway uh support for that has has been confirmed that it does work for uh people using it through proton uh however i do want to make it clear while it is it does kind of make sense there was an issue for uh, Cyberpunk 2077 to run having issues running on Proton because of all the the new that the the support you need to have updated in those packages and that kind of thing. It's also worth noting that Cyberpunk 2077 that's a interesting name to say is also having issues on Windows and was delayed multiple times throughout its development process for Windows release. So it's not necessarily just because it's running on Proton and that creating an issue. There's some issues in general, so it's worth noting because it is a, had a same day release available to playing on Linux thanks to Proton, and I just wanted to give uh, you know a thanks to the Proton team and Valve and coavers for making it possible to play games with something like this, a AAA game on on Linux with Proton on day one. That is just awesome. So thanks for the development people. Um, it's fantastic. So if you want to learn more about this or maybe check it out for yourself and get Cyberpunk 2077, I'll have a link in the show notes for that. And also, if you do decide to try out Cyberpunk 2077 on Linux through Proton, then be sure to give your experience on ProtonDB by going to protondb.com and filling out the reviews and letting people know what your experience is so that they can know, know what they should expect going forward if they decide to play it as well. So if you do check it out, be sure to submit your experience on ProtonDB and let everybody else know what your experience is. And also let me know in the comments below if you did give it have a chance to try out Cyberpunk 2077. And also, is the name of that game way too long to say as many times as I had in this particular topic? Let me know in the comments below. Up next in the show is the latest release of OpenRGB. It's 0.5 has been released. If you're not familiar, OpenRGB centralizes RGB software ecosystems in one application. They use reverse engineering protocols and it's a solution for basically, depending on, they have multiple different types of manufacturers, multiple different types of devices and all sorts of stuff. It's like having all of them in one application, which is cool. And the way they describe it is one app to roll them all. So, I approve of that reference. Uh, they the features that come with is it, it gives you the ability to set colors and set effect modes. Uh, you can save and load profiles. It has an SDK for third party support. It has a command line interface and also has uh, synchronizing uh, lighting across multiple PCs. As well, as giving you the ability to do standalone and a client slash headless server configuration if you want to do as well, and it doesn't require any official manufacturer software in order to make this work, which is really cool. It has support for a wide range of devices like uh, Asus, ASRock, ugh, uh, Gigabyte, Corsair, MSI, Razer, Thermaltake, and more. By the way, the ASRock was the ugh. anyway, uh, also. Uh, This is really cool because it has support for a variety of different devices, whether it's a mouse, a keyboard, uh, all sorts of stuff. And they added new support for the uh, 0.5 release, has added support for EVGA graphics cards. So you can... So you can use the you can change the coloring and the, the you can change the lighting for the RGBs on these graphics cards if you have EVGA now. Also, Philips Wiz, uh, Corsair Dominator Platinum RGB, Sony DualShock Four, Logitech G two one three, ASUS mice. Uh, as well as other things like Cooler Master stuff and HyperX, Fury, Ultra, and many more. So it's really cool. And they also added new features on this as well. They've added new safety protocols Depending because they are doing reverse engineering. There are some issues of potential risk in bricking a device. But they've made a new safety protocols to eliminate the possibility of that happening because they did run into that previously. And now with these new protocols, it is less likely, which is great. They added new JSON-based settings configurations and there's a new... uh, settings tab in the UI for enabling and disabling devices. So if you want to be able to disable the lighting completely or for working with those different devices, you can do so directly all in this one situation, uh, this, all this one application, as well as they've added some new faster detection aspects for various devices. And that is nice. I'm actually uh, really excited to try this out because my keyboard has RGB and you can't edit it from the keyboard itself. And I have had the same color of my RGB for my keyboard since I got it. So I'm looking forward to see what I can do with this on this application. So if you're interested in checking it out, OpenRGB 0.5, I'll have links in the show notes below. Next in the show is the latest release of Cute Toolkit, and that is 6.0. So this is a big major release for Cute. The 6.0, they say that it gave them the ability to have a higher degree of freedom to implement new features, functionality, and better support for today and tomorrow's requirements. Uh, Qt 6.0 is the continuation of the Qt 5 series, and they say that they have focused on making migration non-disruptive for users. So it is worth noting that it's not a full version compatibility between 5 and 6, because Qt 6 does not yet support uh, most of the add-on modules, well not most of them, but many of them anyway, and that that it can be currently found in the 5.15 branch of Qt. And they said that this was intentionally decided to, to free up time to ensure that they could complete all of the changes that was needed to make the cute framework essentials – the the essential modules for the Qt framework. So – uh, 6.0 is a starting point for the next generation of cute and it is not yet as feature complete as 5.15 but they say that they will be get, filling the gaps within the, the a few months to come and they've also said that the add-ons will have a similar thing for those modules and updates as and then as the next versions of cute come out and they say that many of those changes might not be immediately visible but they say that they believe they will be able to have them in in the the years to come as far as keeping cute cute as competitive as possible possible so it's interesting because this is uh we talked about cute in a previous episode in April. We talked about that because there was a licensing issue of saying that these code will no would not be open source when they first released the newest versions, and that is not happening as of yet they they were they were announcing that they were thinking about making cute uh not necessarily closed source but they would wait longer to release the source code. Prior to you know different releases of the actual toolkit, however, that has not happened. You the source code for uh, Qt 6.0 is available right now, and in this new version of the toolkit, they also have uh, improvements for Vulkan. They have a large set of different graphics APIs that are imp- making improvements for those, as well as uh, quick 3D improvements and many other in changes to their graphics stack. They've also uh, changed some a new, like new, they call it a next generation of QML. They've also made some improvements to their toolings there, and also the package managers for extra libraries. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release for Qt Toolkit, the 6.0 release, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Crux Linux. And Crux, this is 3.6. We talked about the last release of Crux, which was about a year and a half ago with 3.5. If you're not familiar, Crux is a distribution that is quite interesting. They, The way they describe it is a lightweight Linux distribution for x86 architecture targeted at experienced Linux users. The primary focus of this distribution is to keep it simple, they say, which is reflected in a straightforward tar.gz-based package system. They say that, they, that it has in-it scripts that are in the BSD style, and they also have a relatively small... small... Small collection of trimmed packages. So they also said that the secondary focus is utilization of new Linux features and recent tools and libraries, as well as has a port system which makes it easier to easy to install and upgrade applications. Uh, They also have the Crux Handbook, which gives you a lot of uh, very good documentation for those who are experienced users because. To be clear, while this is an interesting distribution and has been around for a very long time, it's in fact, it's even the inspiration for the existence of Arch Linux because prior to Arch Linux, the developers of Arch used Crux and this is what inspired them to make Arch Linux. So it is on the experience level type of of user. So if you want to check it out, uh, feel free to do so with the latest version of 3.6. But keep in mind, it is for experienced users. They've also made some interesting updates to their bootloader system, so that you can now uh, use a new menu th- during selection of the bootloader. To when you do the setup for the app for the distribution, so you can choose which bootloader you want to use, uh, as well as improvements to uh, like updating the toolchain for multi-lib and glibc and that sort of stuff. So if you want to check it out, I'll have links for Crux Linux 3.6 in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the 5.2 release of QEMU or QEMU or. QEMU or something along those lines, however you want to say it, this latest release has a lot of cool stuff. In fact, there's more than 3000 changes in this release and there's, we're not going to cover everything. So we're just going to do like the highlights. So if you pair QEMU 5.2 with the, with the Linux kernel 5.8 or later, you can get uh, a bunch of new features and specifically the new KVM CPU feature to improve handling of asynchronous page faults. Forward. To clarify what this means, uh, host memory over committing may cause guest memory to be swapped. And when guest uh, vCPU access memory or RAM is swapped out by an, a host, its execution is suspended until memory is swapped back. Asynchronous page fault is a way to try and use the guest vCPU more efficiently by allowing it to execute other tasks while pages is, is brought back into the memory. So that's what the page fault, the asynchronous page faults are for. And it just basically it's a ba- it's a way to make the the host be able to control the guest cpu and ram more efficiently and that sort of stuff. There's also new experimental QEMP, QMP interface for a crypto subsystem and there's been improvements to the GUI like spice. If you're not familiar spice is a remote viewer for VMs kind of like VNC but not exactly and also they added support for a side and extra mouse buttons inside of Spice, as well as high, improve the high DPI support. And you can now set physical dimensions of the client monitors, uh, which is very nice. Uh, there's also been improvements for the build system. The build system is now partly based on Mason, uh, but it's not full. It's not fully been converted to Mason yet, or is it Mason? I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. Anyway, however you're supposed to pronounce that, they have added support for you know building on top of Mason. And also, uh, they've been a lot of more improvements to migration, monitoring, audio support inside of QEMU, uh, various different things like that, even improvements to different types of processors, including RISC-V support, getting open SBI 0.8, and support for migrating machines with with RISC-V, which is awesome, and a lot more stuff. Also, just real quick, they have added the mandatory features for the specification compatibility with the NVMe 1.3, which is really nice for virtualization. So it means you have a very, you can have a lot of really high powerful with power performance with NVMe through the QEMU, which is great. So if you learn more about this particular release or 5.2 of QEMU, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some humble bundles. I haven't talked about humble bundle in a very long time, but there's some really cool bundles this week and I wanted to show them to you. For example, we have the Hacking 101 bundle by No Starch Press. It has ebooks like Metasploit, Web Security for Developers, Real World Bug Hunting. Black Hat Go, and many more. There's also some uh, game development bundles like a Map and Level Creator Bundle that gets you software and assets to build your own game maps and levels like uh, Cartoon Platformer, Tile Set Pack, um, Fantasy Map, Pixel Art Tile Set Collection, and many more. And there's also a royalty-free music bundle which gives you royalty mu- royalty-free royalty music and sound effects that you can use for video game development, streaming, movies, YouTube videos, or whatever other kind of content creation you want to use it gets you 26 albums and over 400 tracks which includes uh, the formats for dot uh, dot wave dot mp3 and also some other licenses for this music for like uh, shadows guild superhero stuff and a um, dream dream imagination i think it's dream imagination combined into one word anyway If you want to check them out, I have Honda bundle links in the show notes below. Also, just to be clear, these are affiliate links. So if you do decide to purchase them, please use those links below because a small percentage of the sale will go towards this podcast. And I would very much appreciate that. So all those links in the show notes below for the hacking 101, the map, actually all of these. Yes. But also I might as well, if you're curious about checking out any of the other bundles, I'll have links for those as well too, just because. Anyway, Humble Bundle is great, so check those out if you're interested. uh, Links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxedils.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, which is a shirt that I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. So you can go to dlnstore.com to check it out. We also have ways to contribute at any cost to use using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So you can join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. And if those time zones are not helpful, I'll have a link for the time zone converter in the show notes for you to check that out to convert it into your time zone. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source for Linux good news.